holding now in my hand um, a, a rhesus macaque skull with a stimosiever implanted, probably one of the only remaining surviving stimosievers that Delgado created, that he fabricated. By contemporary uh, standards, a fairly simple design with the electrical system in the cap and the electrodes actually are penetrating the skull and I can see them through the form and magnum. But he, he was you know, a self-trained electrical engineer as well. He, well, I remember one of the big rooms in his laboratory was an electrical engineering lab, uh, and he had technicians working in there full-time developing equipment. To me, one of the most amazing pieces of equipment he developed at the Given given the years that he was working, uh, was the uh, the remote control for electrical stimulation. The same way that we have uh, remote controls now for our TV sets. You know, at the time in the 1950s, no such device existed. Uh, this was this was really at the edge of of science fiction, and he knew it. He he knew exactly what he had and how um, how exciting it would be for futurists uh, at that time. Welcome to Stimulating Brains. Hello and welcome back to Stimulating Brains, episode number 15. I just got off a fascinating conversation with Professor Peter J. Snyder from the University of Rhode Island, where Peter is the Vice President for Research and Economic Development, Professor of Biomedical and Pharmaceutical Sciences, as well as Professor of Art and Art History. In contrast to most episodes, Peter and I did not talk about his own research today, but about somebody else, a very prominent historical figure in the field of deep brain stimulation. Namely, Peter's father served as José Delgado's last American-trained postdoctoral fellow at Yale in the early 1970s. If you have never heard about José Delgado, don't worry, you'll learn about him in this episode. Potentially, it's fair to say, though, that José Delgado invented deep brain simulation independently together with Lawrence Poole and Robert Heath around 1948. You may remember the work of Robert Heath from episode number 6, where I interviewed the author Lone Frank, who wrote a book about Heath. I made contact with Peter to learn more about the life and work of Delgado after reading Peter's excellent monograph about him. Together with other stories, it is published in a book called Science and the Media, which recounts historical scientific events and examines how scientists communicated with the public, often via the media. The book is an amazing read of utmost relevance in our modern times and, for instance, also features a story about Louis Pasteur, which might be surprising to read as well. So I can really recommend Peter's book. Before we begin, as a small side note, I want to thank the Interventional and Cognitive Neuromodulation Laboratory at Charité, led by none other than Julian Neumann, who today vacated their precious office space for me to make recording this episode possible. Thanks a lot. So now let's begin. I hope you will find my conversation with Peter as exciting as I did, and thank you for tuning in. Stimulating Brains, episode number 15. (music) 
Dear Professor Snyder, thank you so much for taking time for this. So today we agreed to talk about a specific historical figure in the field of deep brain stimulation. Your father, Dr. Daniel R. Snyder, served as Delgado's last American-trained postdoctoral fellow at Yale in the early 1970s. Could you tell us some more about your relationship to Delgado? Um, were you in the lab as a child every now and then? Or how, how, how did that work? How are your memories about that? Sure. Uh, yeah, I spent um, an, an awful lot of time in the laboratory as a child growing up probably between the ages, well, as far back as I can remember, up through about uh, age 12 or 13. Um, that's when uh, uh, Delgado had moved back to Spain by then. And my father uh, carried on in the lab uh, up until the early 80s, uh, at which point he, he left to pursue a, a private uh, company startup. But I, I grew up in the lab um, helping to take care of uh, the, the monkeys in the lab, uh, assisting with surgery, um, doing some behavioral observations, just helping you know, as, a, as a kid as I could. Amazing. So let's talk a bit about Delgado's work first. So it seems that it all started with fear. Delgado was working as a young physiologist with Professor Neil Miller at Yale, where they discovered fear responses when stimulating the reticular ascending system in cats. Then around 1954, Olson Milner came about with their bent electrode that led to the discovery of the pleasure center. Can you remind us what happened there? Yeah, so Olds and Milner were working in Montreal and accidentally made this discovery in cats uh, of the, the pleasure center. And it was, um, it was a very fortuitous discovery, but it gave um, Delgado uh, the um, idea that rather than using more permanent means to alter behavior, uh, such as, you know, neurosurgery. And at the time, uh, frontal leucotomy surgery was, was uh, you know, being widely applied, uh, sometimes completely indiscriminately. Um, he believed that the next wave would be in electrical stimulation of the brain um, using remote means uh, in order to treat all sorts of diseases and, uh, or disorders or including criminal behavior. And, uh, it was the work of Olds and Milner that really prompted him to, to, uh, try to chart that course. Yeah. And I, I, I find it so, so funny that, uh, it was indeed, um, the idea that Olson Milner wanted to reproduce something from the Miller lab with Delgado with fear response, but then went into a different center and, uh, essentially discovered a pleasure response, which then Delgado also uh, worked with later. So great serendipity in science here. Going back to Delgado, he started his career in Madrid, then went to Yale in 1946 and stayed there until 1974 when he went back to Madrid. In, in 1953, he was catapulted into spotlight by coverage by the New York Times, Time magazine and even national television. How was Delgado's relationship with the media? Uh, Dr. Delgado had a very deep and abiding relationship with the media. He loved the, the, the activity. He loved to um, have media coverage. Uh, and, and, and even controversial coverage was great. That was fine. I mean, okay. in many ways, we have current 
uh, political figures, uh, particularly in this country, but certainly in Europe as well, that that are addicted to media coverage, even if it's negative. Um, this was uh, long before what we're experiencing now. Delgado was uh, excited by media coverage and saw it as a useful uh, platform because he was continually seeking uh, more resources from Yale University for, in terms of space, personnel, uh, equipment, uh, and also um, uh, support. Uh, a lot of his funding came from uh, the Department of Defense uh, or Department of the Army at the time um, here in the United States. And he uh, was constantly uh, working to ensure that his uh, um, program of research was seen as being highly relevant and, and fundable, particularly by the, by the military. Great. I think I think you mentioned um, it already briefly that uh, Delgado was mentored by John Fulton, who had shown that prefrontal lesioning turned a violent chimpanzee named Becky calm and compliant. John Fulton demonstrated that in a 1935 lecture in London, where someone crucial to the history of um, stereotactic lesioning was in the audience. Yes. Uh, so so yeah. So th this was you know Fulton. Um, uh, I think he was never comfortable with the uh, directions that his uh, physiologic research uh, would take would take uh, the world. Um, but uh, certainly um, that presentation in, in the early 1930s led to uh, the rise of psychosurgery. Uh, and um, Delgado in the in, in, in the you know late 40s early 50s um, was riding that wave. Uh, it was it was a very um, prominent um, activity by many American psychiatrists. And Delgado, of course, his his medical background is in psychiatry, mm -hmm. and uh, he he saw this uh, behavioral control using psychosurgery as a very powerful tool. Uh, but um, he he also, I think, began to see he he started working at Yale at a point in time where there were some initial questions being raised about the long term efficacy as well as long term safety of psychosurgery. And so he was looking for an alternative and, and it was really electrical stimulation that led to that alternative. What I found so interesting about this is that it seems like this 1949 Nobel Prize for Egas Moniz for leukotomy, who was informed by Fulton or motivated by Fulton. Oh, yeah. So, so that, oh, yeah. um, was shared with Hess, right? Who was another hero of, of Delgado who had more the electrical side in it. So it, that's right. See, Seems it was a shared Nobel Prize between the two fields at the time. That's um, right. That's right. So, and 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 so so if I remember correctly, Delgado even wanted to try to get away from lesioning the brain, right, with electricity. Like that's brain. correct. Yes, that's right. I think one one, one undoubted uh, success of him or um, uh, was that he was uh, a great inventor, right? Um, was referred to as a technological wizard by colleagues. Um, so, so he, yeah. he invented these stimulus half dollar sized, and also I think chemitrodes that could release precise amounts of drugs directly into the brain. Did you, with your contact to the lab, uh, you know, experience some of these technological um, inventions or, or parts of that, or oh, absolutely or build there as well? 
Yeah, so um, you, your audience won't see this, but I'm holding now in my hand um, a, a rhesus macaque skull with a stimosiever implanted. And wow. this is probably one of the only remaining surviving stimosievers that Delgado created, that he fabricated. Um, and and, and it's, it's by contemporary uh, standards, a fairly simple design with the electrical system in the cap and the electrodes actually are penetrating the skull and I can see them through the form and magnum uh, looking cool. from the ventral surface. I can, I can see the electrodes in it. Um, but he, he was, you know, a self-trained electrical engineer as well. He, well, I remember one of the big rooms in his laboratory was an electrical engineering lab. Uh, and he had technicians working in there full time developing equipment. Um, to me, one of the most amazing pieces of equipment he developed at the given given the years that he was working uh, was the uh, the remote control for electrical stimulation. The same way that we have uh, remote controls now for our TV sets. Um, you know, sitting on our, our uh, couches uh, and you can use them across the room or across in, in, in the case, I think we'll probably talk about a, a bull ring. Um, you know, at the time in the 1950s, no such, no such device existed. Uh, there, there were no remote controls for television sets. Uh, this, was, this was really at the edge of, of science fiction. And he was... Um, he was developing uh, these these uh, electronic instruments uh, that really pushed the imagination of of readers of of the New York Times and 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 other publications. And he and he knew it. He he knew exactly what he had and how um, how exciting it would be for fu futurists uh, at that time. Makes sense, and it's still really impressive. I think. Um... Maybe last question before we get to the bull. From 1952 on, he implanted DBS electrodes and stimulus in around 25 patients, mostly with schizophrenia and epilepsy, at a now defunct mental hospital in Rhode Island. And well, he, he was, he, yeah, he, a little bit in Rhode Island, but he was working mostly with uh, Mark and Irvin in, uh, in Boston. Uh, in the in the Boston okay. area, and Mark and Irvin put out a book in the early '70s describing these patients. Gotcha. And and it it seems like he narrowly beat Robert Heath and also published his first account before Lawrence Poole, who had apparently made the first DBS surgery in 1948, but published on it later. So, do you think it's fair to say that the three of them, Delgado, Heath, and Poole, have independently invented deep brain simulation back then? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, yeah I, I think so. I think uh, Delgado's innovation was um, was the remote control. Yeah. Uh, you know that really was unique and and uh, proved uh, certainly in a in a dramatic way to be a, a useful uh, a useful tool for him. Great. So okay, let's let's go to the main story. Um, in 1963, Delgado completed a demonstration experiment to prove to a skeptical public and to the scientific community that he could turn a brave, angry and dangerous beast into a docile animal by the push of a button. What happened? Yeah, so Delgado, um, and, you know, as I described in that book chapter, which I think is how you found me, um, at, at that point in time, he was 
under fire uh, from his colleagues at Yale who, who had some ethical questions about what he was doing. He was very interested in planting electrodes into the brains of convicted prisoners who were incarcerated in Connecticut. Um, and Yale was very uncomfortable with that. Um, he uh, had married uh, the daughter of one of the vice presidents of Yale, who was a beautiful woman who worked in his lab. And he was using those connections to, to curry some favors in terms of space and, and uh, ac uh, access to students that his colleagues uh, were, were not comfortable with. Um, he actually was uh, not um, in the Department of Psychiatry at that point because his colleagues weren't comfortable with his work. And he was in the uh, Department of Comparative and Laboratory Medicine, really a veterinary department, uh, because um, you know, he, he was really working at the edge of what was uh, considered uh, acceptable. Um, he was um, also uh, garnering some concerns being raised by colleagues uh, externally around, uh, you know, internationally and with uh, his own study sponsors uh, through the Department of the Army uh, about the real relevance of this work uh, in, in, um, in modulating behavior uh, the way he was purporting uh, to be able to do. So, so Delgado, to answer uh, those critiques, um, relied on what he was really good at, which was self-promotion. And he um, uh, developed, he designed a, what he called an experiment, but really not an experiment because it wasn't a controlled study of any sort. It was a demonstration uh, where he implanted his stimulus into uh, the brains of two uh, bulls, uh, two um, aggressive bulls, uh, brave bulls. Uh, that's actually the name of the breed. Um, yeah. And uh, he, he did this in Ronda, Spain, where he grew up. He brought a film crew with him. And he uh, intended and did uh, film this entire demonstration um, that he had, uh, you know, he had produced the film, directed the film, narrated the film, and was the, uh, the principal actor in the film. Uh, and uh, the purpose was to show that he could get in a bull ring with a charging bull and have the bull come at him uh, with obviously an intent to attack and gore him, and he would stop it in its tracks, ostensibly by modifying behavior. Uh, and that's where he, 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 he wasn't quite being truthful with uh, the public uh, in what he was actually doing. And I, I'd like to just point out that Delgado was an exceptionally well-trained neuroanatomist and a highly skilled surgeon. He had tremendous skills in surgery and he knew exactly where he was putting these electrodes. Uh, and in fact, he, he was putting the, the electrodes that uh, led to the bulls stopping in their tracks and engaging in forced uh, stereotypic turning behavior. Uh, these were uh, implanted into the caudate nuclei and um, he was really interrupting the pyramidal motor pathway of the bull. Uh, and uh, that 
um, led to a very expected uh, cessation of the bull's behavior once when he depressed the uh, the button on his remote control, and he could have a charging bull rage at him and and stop in its tracks and turn. The 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 um, the sleight of hand is that this really is controlling the mood or affect of the bull. That that's what he claimed, right? So so. Um... He claimed that he controlled mood, but instead you're saying he mainly controlled motor. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. And and so when you listen to the film and you dissect the words and look at where the electrodes were placed, he was not being truthful, but the, you can't point to any one statement that was an abject lie either. So he was skirting that fine line and he knew it. This is an extremely bright guy. He knew exactly what he was saying, and he knew exactly how far to push the story without being accused of crossing that line uh, and, and, and just abjectly lying to people. Maybe uh, we can actually recount the episode, how you recovered that film, because I found that really interesting. You, you wrote, your father took over Delgado's lab, including the monkey colonies for 10 years after Delgado returned to Spain. And then you write that a number of items, for example, books and several reels of 16 millimeter film made their way from the laboratory to my parents' home. Um, the original print of the Brave Bulls film um, was found on the top shelf of your childhood bedroom closet where it most likely resided under a pile of t-shirts for 20 years or more. Is that really true? Yeah, so yes, I, I found the film. It was an old 16 millimeter reel. I still have it. Uh, it was definitely in my closet for at least a couple of decades um, under under old T-shirts of mine. And I was, I was just stunned when I found it. Um, at the time I was working for uh, the drug company Pfizer and uh, I, I had to scour Uh, the company to find a 16 millimeter film projector with a working light bulb in it, uh, which was not easy to find. Can uh, imagine, yeah. And and I remember sitting setting it up in my kitchen uh, uh, where where I was living at the time, and I just couldn't believe what I saw. But the um, the magnetic strip that contained the audio somehow had slipped, or pieces had broken off. It was it was frayed. And, and it wasn't timed well with the video any longer. So we, I, I, I hired the help of a local TV uh, uh, editor, television editor, and he digitized both the audio and video separately. And then we sat in his editing room and remastered and reapplied the audio where the video, where it made sense. And um, so the, the, the remastered film is in the process of being donated to the National Library of Medicine in the U.S., and it will be available internationally free anytime um, to view uh, very soon, where it, it, it'll be available in their video archive for anyone to see within the next uh, probably month or two. That's amazing. We can link from the show notes to that. So, I hope so, you would. And, um, so you're claiming that um, if, if, if the, the result was really... Um, um, remote motor control, so not controlling the emotion of the animal, the New York Times would not have reported um, as much about that, right? So I think we haven't even mentioned that so far. 
New York Times um, wrote about that on the front cover in 1965. Um, and they, the author, Osmondson, uh, concluded that it was probably the most spectacular demonstration ever performed of the deliberate modification of animal behavior through external control of the brain. I'd say remote controlling motor behavior of an animal is still kind of spectacular, right? But your point is it wouldn't have had the same effect, correct? I think so. Um, it, you yeah. know, yes. It, I mean, that was that's a that's a major advance all by itself, and I, I, I certainly want to give him credit uh, where it's due. He was a very inventive scientist, and he was a very skilled one. Um, but he knew his audience, and he knew that um, uh, you know the the military was funding his work not simply to control motor behavior, but really to control the aggressiveness or affect of of soldiers. I mean, that was part of their interest. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it also uh, is clear in his later writings, uh, such as the book he published, uh, Towards a Psycho-Civilized Society. Um, it, it's very clear where he wanted to head. Uh, he was interested in treating, again, he was initially trained as a psychiatrist. He wanted to treat schizophrenia, criminality, uh, um, um, untreatable major depression, um, you know, all sorts of conditions, uh, and really by controlling mood and affect, not, not motor control. Um, but, yeah. but the question, I think, you know, we all have to ask ourselves if, 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 if you were going to get in a bull ring with a 2000 pound charging bull, do you want to make them a little less aggressive as they're charging at you? Or do you want to stop them in their tracks and, and force a contralateral turn? And I would I would argue it was the latter. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, it's much safer. It seems much safer to do that. Um, well, well, uh, great point. Um, I think I think you mentioned that he was also challenged about this potential um, this deception by his contemporaries, and in his defense, he then reported on evidence of corded nuclear stimulation in the bully of a macaque colony. The bully had been aggressive, but other monkeys could then press a lever to stimulate his corded nucleus, stopping that uh, bully as well in his tracts. Could you tell us a bit more about this experiment? Well, yes. Yeah, so, the, you know, the bull demonstration exercise that he did in Spain, that was that was really meant for media consumption. That, that wasn't his mainline work. His mainline work was in primate, in particularly rhesus macaques, in uh, the laboratory on the fourth floor of Yale's med school um, in, in New Haven, Connecticut. And, and he had several social colonies. Uh, these social colonies were under 24-hour um, observation, video observation, recording. Um, he was doing um, uh, 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 EEG recording. These, a lot of these monkeys were tethered uh, for telemetry at the time. Um, and uh, he was very interested in the ability to modify the social organization of a colony by changing the dominance hierarchy of the males uh, uh, using electrical stimulation. And, and so certainly if you um, put uh, uh, the stimuceiver in the dominant male and stimulate the caudate 
repetitively over and over day after day, you are going to modify that animal's behavior. Uh, you know, it's very hard to maintain a complex social hierarchy uh, for that dominant male when uh, the caudate nucleus is being stimulated uh, er erratically over a protracted period of time. It's certainly not good for the ego of such a monkey bully if you are repeatedly stopped um, in your tracks, right? So, so that that's how I experienced this effect that also his social role would, of course, change um, if others could uh, manipulate him. So um, I, I think you make an excellent point here. And you also back that up further in your article that um, by... Uh, work from Foreman and Ward, who in 1957 stimulated 66 separate points in the head of the corded nucleus, and the most common response was forced contralateral head turn, and in um, 64, McLennan stimulated the corded nucleus of cats and reported that complete arrest of movement upon low intensity and frequency stimulation, whereas then greater intensities and frequencies led to contralateral turning. So this research and evidence must have been known to Delgado at the time. Yeah. Yes, I think so. I think so. It's it's worth pointing out also uh, for when 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 your listeners are able to watch the film when it's uploaded. Um, uh, he he tested this uh, first with his research assistant, uh, which I thought was hilarious because any of us who've had graduate students, uh, you know, could 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 uh, argue that that's. That's a nice thing about having graduate students is you can put them in the bull ring first before you go in with, with the bull charging at you. Um, so he had a grad student or research assistant in there first. Um, uh, and, and um, you know, they were working the kinks out with that student. Oh, wow. That, that is uh, ethically interesting. I agree. Okay. So, so um, maybe some more questions um, about the impact of these pioneers on the modern day field of deep brain simulation. If us modern scientists, DBS scientists, carefully read the work of Delgado and his contemporaries, for example, Robert Heath, um, we discover, or we may discover, that there is not really much new under the sun. They seem to have done everything, right? Delgado has carried out the first adaptive deep brain simulation. Robert Heath had targeted the medial forebrain bundle and induced flashbacks by hippocampal stimulations. The first human deep brain stimulation in Parkinson's disease was carried out by Lawrence Poole in 1948. So you also quote the historian Elliot Wallenstein, who characterized this period of time as one during which efforts were made to describe as many behaviors as possible that could be elicited by brain stimulation. Do you see differences in the way the experiments are carried out now versus they were carried out back then? Yeah. Um, it's marginally different now. I think, you know, now there's a more heavy dependence on randomized controlled trials, even for yeah. surgical interventions. Um, there's now a, you know, at least, uh, you know, I'm speaking with respect to the United States because this is where I live. Um, you know, back then our Food and Drug Administration was not, reviewing or approving devices. Now, if you are using an implantable device, there has it has to go through a review process, much like any drug uh, treatment would go through. So there's, you know, now a weight of evidence, or uh, there's a, there's, there are new processes that require uh, anyone who intends to market 
any device for use to treat anything therapeutically to go through um, a, a, a series of um, controlled experiments uh, that are uh, as free of bias as possible to both show efficacy as well as safety. None of that really existed back then. Uh, so I, I think that um, uh, the future of deep brain stimulation for treating uh, disorders like Parkinson's, like major depression, uh, um, are, you know, are potential, is potentially bright. Uh, and and, and I, there are some, like Helen Mayberg is doing phenomenal work uh, in this area now with major depression. Um, her work is probably beyond reproach. Uh, but um, that didn't exist back then. It was it was the wild west. Uh, it was you know the, the at at the time um, that that psychosurgery was being advanced, uh, and these were overlapping periods in history. Um, you know, American psychiatry um, didn't you know, were vocal and not in, in really not. Uh, thinking that any controlled trials were necessary, they 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 just went right into wide use, and and I think that happened to a certain extent with uh, deep brain stimulation. I think Robert Heath ran into that problem. He lost a lot of credibility historically as a result, yeah. uh, and yet the tech, the underlying technology, when applied uh, carefully and uh, also at dosages of of current. Uh, uh, that are that are a little bit safer um, can have very wide promise. Makes sense. So to recapitulate, um, you also write that uh, by 1960, Heath's team had conducted deep brain simulation experiments in 52 patients, of which 42 were schizophrenics, and I think um, Delgado had around 20 patients operated. Um, then I think the discovery of chlorpromazine in 1955 largely hindered further advancement of this program in, in Tulane and other places. So, but recently um, novel programs, for instance in Barcelona, are attempting to treat schizophrenia using the brain simulation. And if you read the novel papers, they don't seem to cite um, the old work. Um, do you think we can still learn, you know, if we, especially if we attempt to do the same thing again or similar things again, Should we read the papers and learn from maybe past mistakes that were made? Oh, I, I think uh, I, I, I absolutely. I, um, you know, we're we're bound to you know historically. I think humans are bound to just keep uh, repeating history over and over again. Um, I think the progress in science will will be more uh, rapid and uh, efficient if we understand the historical origins of the questions that we're looking at uh, today. And, uh, you know, we have a lot to learn from these historical figures. Uh, you know, some of the research methodology is not consonant and not up to today's standards. And yet, um, you know, there's a lot of information uh, buried in these papers uh, that, that, that really will inform uh, how we, how we de design experiments properly today. Uh, so I, I think um, we're... We're, we're really remiss not to pay attention to the historical origins uh, of, the, of this work. Um, and that's to advance the technology. I, I think also in, in that paper, I make the case that 
um, you know, there's a there's a broader lesson here in how we engage the public in conveying really complex information. Uh, you know, the, the the topic that we're discussing is is really a complicated one on many levels, and as scientists, we're trained. Uh, most of our training, I think, is really geared to helping us to appreciate and understand uh, nuance in an argument and shades of gray where you don't have, you know, there's very little black and white uh, answers to things. Um, you know, the, the, the proper way to proceed, let's say, therapeutically with, with a technology like this is largely dependent on all sorts of mitigating factors that have to be considered. And that's hard to convey to the public. It's hard to tell complex stories in 30 second sound bites. Now Delgado chose to take a very simplistic approach. He created sound bites that um, were alluring, that were exciting, that sparked the imagination, but also edged on the, on the, on the border of, of being not factual. Um, and, 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 um, you know, I can see why he did it. It made sense. Uh, it wouldn't be my style. Uh, but, um, but I see why he did what he did. Um, you even report that journalists have the opposing goals, right? So maybe they want the spectacular and simple story. And even if scientists want to report the nuances, they might not find somebody who is willing to, to write them up in that way. Right? That is a huge problem. That is right. Uh, we have different, different drives and needs in these professions. And, uh, you know, the public is ultimately going to consume what the journalists uh, write. And we, we have to do a better job of being able to communicate clearly and effectively because science, particularly what we do, it's a, it's a, it's a social enterprise where we are, it's it, like any other, it's like any other social enterprise. And ultimately, if we can't convey what we're doing and what we're thinking of and what is truthful in a meaningful way to the public, then we're wasting our time. Uh, we, we, We have to be able to um, communicate better. And I would argue that PhD programs uh, have virtually no training uh, inherent in them uh, to train our graduates in how to engage with the media. And I think such training is important and necessary. That's a great point. So science communication should be taught in these programs, I agree, yeah. So maybe for the to wrap up um, for the last questions, can we talk a bit about um, Delgado's book? In 1969, he published his now famous book, Physical Control of the Mind, Toward a Psycho-Civilized Society. In 1970, um, the New York Times magazine hailed him in a cover story as the impassioned prophet, prophet of um, new psycho-civilized society whose members would influence and alter their own mental functions. Is it possible to summarize that book, uh, the main concept of it, um, a society that neuromodulates themselves? Oh, he, he was advocating for um, broad use of ESB in order to improve the human condition, uh, particularly uh, treat our societal ills. Uh, we could treat criminality uh, with this. We could treat mental illness with this. We could um, 
help people to feel more self-actualized and and have better relationships. Uh, this this you know he he was very provocative. He took it he took this idea you know to the nth degree and um, uh, both excited uh, um, people like 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 uh, the woman who who wrote that that New York Times uh, review. Um, but also, um, he, uh, he scared a lot of people. And if you, if you search the web now, you'll find hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of conspiracy theory driven, um, blogs about this and, and about now the military's involvement with it. Um, some of this, uh, you know, I, 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 I feel that, um, uh, you know, conspiracy theories in general are causing the world a great deal of pain and problems at the present time. Yeah. Um, but I would say that Delgado, again, probably knew what he was doing at the time. Uh, of course, there was no internet back then. But but the idea, uh, you know, he, he knew that um, publicity was good, whether it was positive or negative. Uh, you know, to be controversial was a very useful tool for him. Uh, and, and I think that was part of the, uh, the motivation for his writing. Wasn't he even sued by some patients that claimed that he had uh, implanted sim receivers in the, into their brains that he never met? That yeah, I think so, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I peeked over the book um, again this morning and uh, had um, read parts of it before. So, so I think it's really a fascinating work, even though it is, of course, very... Um, I'd say crazy, <laughs> and it. it um, I think there are also passages in it, so in the introduction and the last chapters that are quite philosophical. Even so, I think at some point he, he talks about Galileo demonstrating humankind that we are not the center of the universe, and then I think there's Freud um, also demonstrating, uh, you know, that we are deceived by our subconscious and. Um, he also claims that I think the individual might think um, they have a free will and they they should be entitled their own decisions, but then um, that might not always be true, right? So, um, and I think one, one question he, he also deals with um, that he seems to leave open a bit is, is who would really control the simulation, right? So um, at some point he makes the point it should not be an elite doing it, um, controlling the others, but even um, has some maybe communist uh, parts in there where he says everybody that is entitled or smart enough to control should control. So sometimes people could even control their own brains to work better in the in the society. Yeah, yeah, but he he he. You're right that he kind of left these as open questions, um, mm. which I think is uh, you know reasonable because I don't think any rational individual would have an answer to this, but, um, but, but he also, um, you know, he, he, he knew that he was working in a very politically charged uh, arena. Uh, he was, um, you know, still a, a, a Spanish national and, uh, um, you know, the, the Spain was going through a very tumultuous political time with, uh, you know, a, a post-World War II fascist regime. Uh, and he didn't want to be, uh, you know, he, he didn't want to be targeted by them. Uh, particularly, uh, you know, he obviously went back to Spain and worked in that uh, milieu for, for many years afterwards. 
Um, I think he left these uh, uh, points vague intentionally. Uh, but but just imagine comparing your work as an advance uh, on the on, uh, you know as the uh, uh, inheritor of the works of Galileo and Freud. Yeah, you, you're absolutely right. So I, I think in, in one um, interview, 1970s, um, in the Yale alumni magazine, magazine Delgado claimed that um, his aims were to to cure epilepsy, to cure mental disturbances, and to construct a better world. And that's all. So he did not have humble aims, no, right? No, no. I'll tell you, my my. Um, I, I remember him as a. He was a tall man. He was very tall. He had a deep, booming voice. He had a theatrical voice, like a baritone, real deep voice. And he he was very um, very well dressed. Uh, he. Um, He, he showed up, he, he met my parents once for uh, a play. Uh, they went to a play in New Haven. And my mom told me that uh, he, he showed up in a um, cape and a cane, with a cane. Uh, and, and um, but he was wearing a black cape and, and, you know, and in, in the 19, late 1960s, early 70s in New Haven, no one was wearing black capes. Um, it was, that was not a thing. Uh, so. <laughs> so he, he was a showman. He was really a showman all the time. Yeah, gotcha. Um, I, th I think in the very end of his life, he moved back to California, uh, right? And died there. So um, as, as far as I know, did your father meet him again when he returned to the US? Or did you see him back then? No, or? no. Okay. no. My, my father lost touch with him in the uh, early 80s. Um, But uh, I, I know that he had a son there, and I think he probably went to, to live with his son. Gotcha. Great. So thank you so much. Is there anything else that, that you would have wanted to cover uh, more about the ethics or the reporting or any question I didn't ask? Any no, I, I, think we, I think we covered it well. I, I, I think that um, you know, the point of my writing the chapter was first to make sure that I... I, I there was a historical accounting of this really famous event in 20th century neuroscience. And it needed to accompany the film because if you see the film without the context, um, you know, there's so many, there's deeper layers in that film that, that need to be understood. Um, so I wanted to make sure that was recorded and available to everybody. Um, but, but, but there's also to me a deeper lesson about the ethics and how we communicate what we do as scientists particularly at the present time where we're living in a world facing many serious challenges that will only be addressed with good science, uh, climate change being a good example. And, and without public trust in science, we're going to fail. And um, so how we as scientists communicate the complexity of what we do in a way that garners support from the public and our, and their trust is very important. And so I thought that really reviewing this uh, episode in, in, in uh, neuroscience history could provide some contemporary lessons for how we as scientists need to engage as, as the social, social uh, uh, beings that we are in our profession. I, I couldn't agree more, and I had a, had a great time reading the book. There are also other um, 
similar chapters by other authors in it with the um, parallels, right? For example, about Pasteur and um, yes. uh, reporting back then, which was also really interesting to read. So I can only recommend that um, that book to anyone anybody interested in these uh, things. And also, like, if you're more interested in Delgado, I think also for that alone, um, there's a lot of in in that chapter that we did not cover. So yeah, um, can only recommend it. And uh, I think um, the the CD of the book also has the the film with it, right? It uh, does. It does. I think they replaced it. If, if someone were to buy the book now, I don't think they'd get the DVD. I think I they'd get a, a web link uh, to see it. But but I will be posting the film on the National Library of Medicine's website. So amazing! Yeah. Thank you so much, Professor Snyder. Um, this was really great for our listeners and um, also for myself. Uh, it's really an, such an important figure in the field of DBS, and uh, so it, it was amazing to talk to you. Thank you so Thank much you for so taking much. the time. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Take care.